Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. So, uh, Jordan, you know, we're going to have a very interesting guest, a guy that like drives a car, right? And he drives them like real fast. But I don't know if you remember the time I this called you. This is why you. I do the intros. This Here, is why I, I do the I, intros. Governor I wonder if Casey. you remember the time when I called you, uh, you know, when I was in my super fast uh, Tesla and I, I ran out of I ran out of, of uh, electricity in my car. So why is it you didn't come and help me now that I was stuck there? Is that I mean, what? That I've been th- thinking about that, and I'm just wondering if it's a breakdown in our relationship. You know, I don't well, know. You, I mean, it's it's more so science. I know you're from the Republican Party. You don't necessarily embrace the idea of science, but it's there's a distance between New York City and flyover country where you're located, and I believe that's a good ten hour drive. And as much as I wanted to help you when your time of need, when your car had run out of energy, it's just it wasn't it wasn't feasible for somebody to get there in the right amount of time. Well let me so ask th- you this. Why didn't you say if you stay put, I'll be there? I mean I didn't we, we didn't put any time limit on it. Mm-hmm. I could have sat there and you know and just had deep thoughts waiting for you to arrive, but you never said I'll you know what I'll get on a plane. I mean, that doesn't take ten hours, but okay. I mean, it's now. Do I, you have a? Do you have an electric car? Have you ever? Would you think about buying one? What do you? What's your thoughts about that? Well, I will say that first of all, let's break this down to two parts. One, I think it's a vote of confidence. If if you need somebody to get on a plane and help you plug in your car, uh, you need more than help from a person in New York. Things are. Things are in a bad place. And I think I respect you enough to say, you know what? The governor is going to figure this out in the next 10 hours. I don't think I can beat him to the punch. You know, Jordan, if little wit, if you and your wife needed to get away and the babysitter was going to cancel and you called me and said, you know, you've had two kids, you've grown them up. They're they're smart. They're they're beautiful. They're everything. They're nice. Uh, Would you come? I would say, yeah, I'll. I'll come over. I'll even drive my electric car if I need to. <laughs> you to tell New me, baby York. said. I, Why not? I, I, wait, wait, get, you, wait, you wouldn't trust me? Wit would get the, the best night's sleep. I would just say, Governor, can you just tell him about the good old days? And he would be out for hours. It'd be amazing. I, <laughs> yeah, but you missed the point. I would sh- I would show up. Okay. You, would, you would drive out. I mean, I appreciate that. I would that. get on a plane and come and babysit Wit if you needed it. If you really needed it, I'd do it. Why not? That's, that's a gross misuse of resources. At this point, financially. Not, not to spend, spend great time with Wit. That would be a lot of fun. He could spending, learn a lot from me, too. <laughs> you're spending too much money. It's not worth it time wise, I should I should invest that money into a local babysitter. Uh, have that person come over, take care of Wit. This is what do you pay a babysitter, by the way, Jordan? Do you? Oh, I'll take. What, what do you think? What do you think a a, a babysitter goes for nowadays? I'm not. I'm not. I'm not in the circus business. I don't guess. So you tell me what you pay. Give me a guess. This is what people listen all, for. All right. Governor. Let me say. What do you think? Just say seventeen dollars an hour. Okay. Tw- Twenty five. 25 an hour. And then also you, if the babysitter is coming over late, you're paying for their 
the ride or Uber home. And yeah. so I, I will say I was invited to my wife and I were invited to go see a, a film recently. And it was a film we'd already seen. It was like a, a replay of a Japanese film that a friend of ours was like, do you guys want to go see this? They're replaying this. It's fun to see it in the theater. And when I ran the numbers, I was like, well, getting there, it's a long movie. It's a three hour film. It's it would be about four hours of babysitting. <laughs> uh, and at night I would pay for I was like, it would it would cost us a hundred and 50 bucks to walk out the door to see a movie we've already seen. Uh, And and that brings up another another interesting thing here, and that is when you went to see the Nets play, Mm -hmm. okay? Yes. What did those tickets cost? What did the babysitter cost? Was that like a couple grand to get that done? We're not quite we're not quite grand area, but we are. Okay. I mean, well, you're uh, rich uh, though. You've told me that you're you have a lot of money. I'm I'm mega rich. So yes. these these are numbers I'm just making up because they mean nothing to me. But but yeah, I'm walking out the door and I'm spending 150 bucks with the babysitter, and then for tickets, you're in the hundred to 150 dollar range. So that's already a bunch of money. You throw you throw any kind of drinks on it, and you know if I'm going out, I'm gonna get lit. I'm a party guy. I like my whiskey. <laughs> So I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna shell out for for a cocktail at Barclays Center and dear Lord, do you know what? I, how much here's another that, thing. I'd say well, that's about that's about seventeen dollars, right? Do you want to know how much a no, like a, much? a whiskey cocktail is at the Barclays Center? How much? I think I think it's thirty to thirty five dollars. Are you kidding me? <laughs> it's it's insane. Thirty-five dollars. It is sneak, insane. Sneak the stuff in. <laughs> I know they got this is this is what the metal detectors are for. They think it's for weaponry and it's for it's flasks. Not, it's to detect liquor. <laughs> this is uh, honestly, it's 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 an insane number to the point that I had gone to an event weeks before and I had paid for a drink and I was like, I am so sh-. I knew it was going to be high and I'm shocked by it. And so I prepared myself the next time I went to like a concert and and I was still. I'm like my, my jaw drops. I'm like, and and I like two drinks. One drink is not enough. So at that point, I'm chilling out, and I, I like to tip. I'm a nice guy. I'm in the sixty seventy dollar range for a couple of drinks. It's it's tough. you know it's and, and you know you wonder what I've always wondered about is that people that go to these these sporting events and they pay, you know. I know that the Formula One race in Miami, which we can talk to Bobby about. People were paying, I am not kidding you, for the weekend, like $25,000 to go to this Formula One deal. I know they never paid that to see Bobby race, you know, I know. But, I mean, can you imagine? He'll let him defend himself. Yeah, we'll let we'll let them. But what do you, I mean? Isn't that unbelievable? Who are these people? I don't, that's. Do they write it off? Do they come? I mean, I just don't understand it. That I mean, I, I, there's probably that second tier of it, right? My brother works in the the sports industry uh, and and works for teams in Detroit, and I know there's a lot of a lot of it has to do with those boxes. I think if you can write it off as a company, yeah, but does anybody expense, go to see any any sports in Detroit? I mean, wow. since since the bad boys, wow, since the bad boys, you know, I mean, People and since pay- Kirk Gibson came out of the dugout and hit, <laughs> I mean, that was great. That was great. But anyway, no, Gibson did that for the Dodgers. Sadly, he he wasn't even doing that for the Tigers. No, they see the Red Wings play. They have affinity for the Tigers. No, it's it's great. Look, it's great. It's Don't great. Even. By the Don't way, give me I that was, Ohio I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you one more thing. So this is another. This is a little sports thing. But uh, my daughter moved to Boston. One of them moved to Boston, and so she's got this now new affinity for the Red Sox. And and of course, mm-hmm. Dad's got some interest now in the Red Sox. So I was watching the game the other night. Got to the ninth inning. It was tied. Uh, Yankees come up in the tenth. Judge hits. I don't know. I I, I just was not even paying attention because I figured the Yankees would win, and uh, and the Yankees score a couple runs, 
and I think, oh, this game's over. I go to sleep. I wake up the next day, and I look at this highlight. And this guy drives in three runs, and they they guy slides into home plate, and they beat the the damn Yankees. It was exciting. Baseball's in those in those minutes, right? Baseball is really it's got it. It's different than about any other sport, but I know it can drag and drag and drag. But boy, it was cool to see. Governor, I got to tell you, you are stretching my patience. You come on here, a Republican, okay, an Ohio State fan, uh, and now you're a Red Sox fan. Like who, who, who am I, Joan of Arc? No, I'm actually, I'm actually not. I'm actually a. Uh... A Guardians fan, you know, because of people like you, we had to change the name. And I'm also, like oh, I, and I'm also a Pirates fan. Um, but it's my, hard to root. You can't root for the Pirates because they can't win. You know, the owner doesn't make any effort to win. It's you. Ha- it's just you ha- crazy. Do you have like any Michigan issue with all those years? Oh, please. Do you have issues with Guardians? See, it's easy. Be- become the Guardians. That's that's what progress is. It was a yeah, bad name that's anyway. What I, that's what I thought. It was just you kind of people that. But oh, but the Kansas my City kind of Chiefs. People. But hey. Kansas City Chiefs, that's okay, right? No, no. Oh, no, we're going to get rid of that, too? Yeah. Uh, w- why have these names? If, if they are offensive, they're archaic. Uh, so you're against that? It. Are you going to campaign against get the uh, change the name for the Kansas City Chiefs? We well, could change I, them to the Kansas City, what do you, you know, what, mound builders or whatever. Sure, sure. I mean, these names are dumb. Let's be honest. The Bears, the Tigers, these are better names. These are not better names. And I do think the ones that are attached <laughs> to a, a, to a culture or to, to people in a, in a way that minimizes it, of course, change it. It's so easy to change it. What's the big deal? Guess what? You know what they're doing anyway? They're just trying to sell you jerseys anyway. They're changing colors. They're doing throwback stylings. Uh, like people aren't going to buy new jerseys anyway in, yeah. in Kansas City, in Cleveland. Yeah, you know what? So, they do change it. It's like shoes. You know, you get a pair of running shoes. You love them. You go in like two weeks later and they go, oh, no, we don't sell those anymore. Right. <laughs> so you got to get a whole. I mean, it's, it's you know, anyway, we're going on and on and on. And on. We are, Why don't you although, introduce our guest? That's it in a nutshell. That's it in a nutshell. I thought you were going to say like, it's like running shoes. They keep improving so you can get new ones. But instead, you're lamenting the fact that the shoes you liked two weeks ago yeah. have changed to something new. Exactly right. Now, I've People seen- have either turned this off or they've they've just got out of their car and said, I've had enough of these two guys. They so. aren't even listening. If you get out You're of your right. car, give the governor a call. No matter how far away, he will come to save you. That's what he does. Okay. We have an excited guest right now. Our guest this week is a legendary auto racing driver. He's a team owner. He's a proud, sad to say it, Ohioan, three-time Indy car champion and Indy 500 winner, currently the founder and owner of the Bobby Ray Hall Automotive Group and co-owner of Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan Racing. It's Bobby Ray Hall. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I, I'm really sorry to interrupt you guys because I was I was actually enjoying that. Uh, <laughs> so if you want me just to sit in the background, you guys can keep going. But no, but, Bobby, uh, get in the I'm driver's happy seat. To, this, happy this, to join. this we watch you. How, how fast could you make that drive from New York <laughs> back to Ohio? You could pull. Ooh. You know what, what? What? What could you do that in? Well, I, I think if you really tried, uh, you could probably make it in, say, Manhattan to um, to uh, Columbus, Ohio. You probably could make that in about, uh, you know, eight to nine hours, I'd bet. 
Okay. See, yeah, do so you, my, come on, Bobby. You drove faster than that. What the hell are you talking about? Well, no, I mean, heck, just getting across Pennsylvania is about five and a half. Good point. Know? That's a good point. Well, that's because of all the toll uh, maybe more, everything. Maybe six hours. No matter so. how fast you drive through Pennsylvania, it's never fast enough. No, I, I, I like Pennsylvania, so. <laughs> okay, sorry, Bobby. Yeah, he's that- selling cars over there. Come on, Jordan, <laughs> know your audience. <laughs> <laughs> do you, Bobby, if you take a cross-country trip, leisurely as 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 not as a professional but as yourself do you feel a a pressure to push it to exceed to bend the no. rules because no do, do, do you no. find well, is it comforting off, I, yeah first off i don't have to because everybody else is so i can just kind of <laughs> go along for the ride and and uh, i don't know if you've ever gone up from say indianapolis to chicago on i-65 um, that's kind of like the indy 500 going up i mean mm-hmm. people in detroit uh, they're 20 over the limit and minimum. So uh, I don't have to, I don't feel any pressure. The pressure for me is to keep up with everybody. That was always, I remember learning how to drive and going through my student driving course in Michigan and you get on the highway and it is, folks are going 20 over. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> and if, if you're going 50, they're honking at you and you're like, yeah. it's, it's such a lesson. And like, I know what the rules are, but there's the rules of the road. You have to That's adopt right. those as well. They, and then they, you, they don't call it the Motown for nothing. They don't call it the Motown for nothing. <laughs> how, so Bobby, how do you guys how ahead, do you guys know ahead, each other? I I want to I want to put this together. As Ohioans, do you all know each go- other? Me and, me and the governor. Well, um, you know, uh, I, I moved to Columbus in 1981, end of '81, to drive for a fellow named Jim Truman, who uh, started the Red Roof Inn hotel chain. And uh, of course, John was already, uh, or I should say, governor was already. Uh, uh, a fixture, you know, a, a very uh, public uh, persona in in Ohio, um, and uh, we met. Uh, I think I certainly think hit it off. I, you know, just a good good person, and 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 uh, I was just telling my wife earlier today when she said, "So who are you on this this show with?" And I said, "Well, it's Governor Kasich." When I won Indy in 1986, I was I had the uh, honor and pleasure privilege to meet um president reagan and um and governor and governor Kasich was the one who arranged that meeting we had lunch at the uh, congressional um uh congressional restaurant there prior to meeting uh, president reagan um got a, in fact i still have the checkered flag that flew over the capitol uh that governor Kasich gave me and um uh, met a lot of interesting people uh i remember trent lott i met him uh during lunch and uh, in any event, uh, then, of course, uh, getting to meet uh, President Reagan, which was really something. So that's really when the relationship began. And then, of course, all the years I lived in Columbus, you know, we played golf together, um, you know, just, you know. Saw Bobby, you remember, you remember the story is when we got into the Oval Office uh, to meet uh, to meet Reagan, mm-hmm. Jordan, uh, Reagan looks over at Bobby. And he says to Bobby, because Bobby's just won the 500, which we got to hear what it's like to do that. And he says, uh, he says to Bobby, have you ever heard of Barney Oldfield? And Bobby says, oh, yeah, he was one of the greatest uh, indie drivers ever in the history of of the sport. And Reagan said, well, one time I was in California. I was driving on the freeway, got this new car. I was stepping on it. And a California patrolman pulls (laughs) me over. And uh, he walks over to, the, to my window. I put the window down, and the uh, policeman looks at me and says, who do you think you are, Barney Oldfield? 
And yeah. Reagan looks at the cop and says, no, but if you'd like to meet him, he's sitting right next to me. <laughs> That's right. That's <laughs> he right. He was in the car That's with right. him. But yeah. You might remember that. So when did, what in that 500, Bobby? Just tell us what the day was like. Uh, tell us the, the discipline that goes into it, the excitement, because there's people listening who they don't know much about about mm-hmm. race cars, mm-hmm. right? Or t- tell us a little bit about it. Get people's interest perked up a little bit You know, bit here. Indianapolis, the 500 is, um, I really think, I'm not sure of other sporting events that if a person wins that, it changes their life uh, professionally and personally, you know, forever. Um, but the Indianapolis 500 definitely does that for a driver. So when you go into that month of May, um, you know uh, the importance of, of the race and the history of the race, you know, it's been around for over a hundred years, um, by far the longest race in this country. You know, you just, you just know fortune shines upon you and you win this race that uh, things are different from there on out. And, uh, what made the year I won, uh, I guess different is that a couple things really, number one, it, it rained out the entire weekend when the race was supposed to have been held. And which was, I think, May 25th was the original date, which also happened to be the birth date of my team owner, Jim Truman, who I just mentioned a little earlier. Uh, Unfortunately for Jim, he was um, in uh, very poor health uh, because of colon cancer. And um, uh, so here's a race was going to be on his birth, his 51st birthday. And it was canceled till the next weekend. And um, so we we start we go to the next weekend and, and many people still attended the race, even though a lot had bought tickets for the previous weekend and had to go back home wherever. How many would be there, Bobby? How many would, would be in attendance? Uh, probably What's a for the race I, I won, there was probably about 300,000 people. I mean, Indianapolis is the largest single day sporting event in the world. And um, uh, I mean, that, for example, the Daytona 500 might attract 150,000 people or somewhere around there. Indies, I think this year we had about 370,000, 350,000, something like that. Um, it, it really is a, an amazing um, uh, place. And so in any event, uh, for us and I, for me, for the team, here we are a week later, uh, our owner who really is the guy who gave us our chances and our opportunities was uh, literally on death's door. You know, I think we all felt within the team that if we were going to win one, we better do this. And um, Sure enough, we had a great race, raced with Rick Mears uh, for most of the race. Uh, then a young fellow named Kevin Kogan got in the mix, uh, won the race with two laps to go on a restart, uh, set the fastest lap of the race on the last lap, and then uh, and won. And, of course, uh, that was a big deal for me, obviously, big deal for our team, big deal for Jim Truman, who tragically died about 10 days later. Uh, I remember going through, uh, there was a parade downtown Columbus, for us, so it was a it was a, a, a big deal, a very meaningful deal, kind of a bittersweet uh, program, a little bittersweet deal for us because of Jim's health. But as I've always told people, I said, how many people are able to realize a dream for someone else? And uh, our team did that for Jim on that day. I, I'm curious, as you're racing around, uh, ha- having having to be a driver, uh, we'll get into sort of what it, what it means and what it takes to be uh, a top tier driver, but I'm sure focus is, is right up there because a lack of focus mm-hmm. can be, can be right. deadly. Um, but also having this momentous occasion, uh, a, a lap or two away, 
Uh, does it start to creep in? How, how do how do you ment- do you mentally keep out the possibility of winning the Indy 500 as you're approaching winning the Indy 500, or is that something that like at what point do you become aware that it's going to happen? Do you, when you get giddy and started screaming like a little girl yeah, inside the well, car, you know I had led I had led the race in previous years. '86 was our uh, fifth year there. I had led in '83, led in '87, '85. Uh, so. I didn't obviously didn't win any of those years, but had led. Um, but when the race starts, I mean, you're really focused on just driving, you know, what you're doing. Cause I mean, you don't have the, you don't have the the luxury of thinking about something that might happen an hour later, you know, you're, it's all about right here and now. And, uh, uh, you know, did I, I mean, we led a lot of the race. I think I led somewhere around 60 to 70 laps. So, you know, a third of the race at least. And, um, or thereabouts. And, uh, Rick led about the same number of laps. I think, you know, when you're racing, you're so focused on what's going on around you and in front of you that you don't really think about, um, and how you, fast or, are you going? Or, 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 you, Jordan. Or, no, or you shouldn't be thinking about anything else. It's all about competition. How fast are you going people. at that point? What, how fast uh, are you well, going? My, my last lap, uh, my last lap, the average speed was 209 miles an hour. Cool. So that meant you're probably doing 200 and 25 or 30 down the straights, um, you know, which at that time was fast today, they're qualifying at 235 miles an hour, which means you're 245 miles an hour going down the straights. I mean, it's a, you know, they're, they're even faster today, but, um, but no, I think, you know, when that last opportunity came up on the restart with two laps to go, it's, you know, it's an hour and ever, and now's your shot. And, uh, you know, are you going to, are you going to take it or are you going to be, one of these people that sits there and, and, and regrets, you know, not being prepared. And um, we were prepared and, and we ended up winning the race. We'll be right back. Bocas del Toro, Panama, a secluded seaside hideaway. Scott Makeda has no idea that his tropical haven is about to become his personal hell. He literally said, I have the power of Satan. A serial killer pretending to be a therapist. Holbert rents a room, and that's where he set up his business as a fake shrink. Accusations of a gringo mafia. Gun running, drugs. A slaughtered family. And then he goes back and he plants another bullet. A killer on tape. Hey man, I'm guilty. Everybody knows I'm a monster. The law of the jungle is simple. Survive. From Treefort Media and Village Roadshow Entertainment Group, this is Natural Selection, Scott versus Wild Bill. I'm your host, Candace DeLong. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And now back to the show. Now, in 1987, you were going to win that race. Tell Jordan a little bit about our listeners. Tell them about what happened in 1987, because people expected you were going to win that race. Well, actually, uh, actually, 87, we were qualified in the middle of the front row. It was Mario Andretti, me, and Rick Mears. That was the front row. Uh, but we had an engine issue initially in 87, led the race for a bit. Um, but really, 90, 1991, or 1990, I should say, was the year uh, I thought we were going to win again. I qualified fourth, uh, which was the same place where I qualified in 86. And uh, But we led again a lot of the race, and uh, with about uh, – 15 laps to go, 12 laps to go, my front wing broke. So I lost a lot of the downforce in the front of the car and we lost speed as a result. 
And in the end, a, a, a Dutch driver, Ari Leijendijk, who I had known for a number of years, raced against him even in the late 70s. Anyway, he passed me. Um, he was driving for a good friend of mine who I had driven for, a guy named Doug Shearson out of Adrian, Michigan, and uh, who unfortunately passed away about 15, 20 years ago. But in any event, Adrian, or, uh, Ari won for Doug. So it was, as a, I was disappointed, obviously, to end up second, um, which maybe a lot of people would be happy with. But, you know, when you've won and you've tasted that milk, you know, you want to taste it again. And, why the uh, milk? Why? Why? The, it feels like the last thing you want to drink or hold after you know, being yeah, in a look, claustrophobic hot car yeah, in the middle of know, Indianapolis for you hours. Know, it, it, I agree with you. It doesn't sound right somehow, but I got to tell you, it tastes pretty good. And uh, <laughs> mainly, mainly because there's a lot of meaning to it. It means that you just won the Indy 500. So you, uh, is, it, is your, is it your, your drink of choice immediately getting out of a hot race car? Yeah, maybe not, but Hey, you just won the Indy 500. So it's tough. It, I can see. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's the test we need to see. We need to see like the NBA finals and Steph Curry walks off the court with just a <laughs> big go. tub of cottage cheese. And you're there like, you can go. he do it? Let's there see. T- top t- elite athlete. What, what can yeah. they, can their stomach hold up after competing at this level? Yeah. Who knows? Bobby, no. you said your life, you know, your life changes when you win the Indy 500. How did your life change? What happened? Well, as a, as a driver, you know, professionally, um, you win Indy and your value uh, goes up tremendously with other teams. You know, they want to hire you because you won the 500. Obviously, sponsors, uh, you know, a company who can claim that they, uh, they're partners with the Indy 500 champion, that's very valuable uh, to them. And so your, your value uh, financially and otherwise goes up. Uh, and, you know, as I tell people, I've won, I won – about 28 IndyCar races in my career, uh, one Indy 500. I'm never, I won, uh, for example, I won uh, Laguna Seca out in Monterey, California. I won that race four years in a row. I'm never introduced as the four-year winner of the Laguna Seca IndyCar race. I'm always introduced, first and foremost, as a 1986 Indy 500 champion. And then they say, oh, by the way, he won three championships, which is, frankly, harder to win than just on a single given day. But, um, but that's the import of the Indy 500. And you see it when you go there. Um, it, it, it truly does stand above the rest in terms of the grandeur and the, and the circumstance, the pomp and circumstance and the, just the, the history, the traditions that, that happen at, at Indy that are there. Uh, you know, it's just different. And, um, and so that's why that value goes up. What I, I'm curious, you've you've won the Indy 500, but you also uh, won it as an owner as well, right. and you were yeah. you were you you also occupied the position of an owner driver. Right. I think what 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 is what kind of autonomy do you have just as a driver, and what kind of responsibilities add on to it uh, when you become an owner in addition? Well, I think you know people ask what's the difference. You know, I mean, we've won twice now as an owner uh, or co-owner, I should say, and then once as a driver. You know, people want to know what's the difference. And I think the difference, as an owner, you truly have a greater appreciation for what it takes to win that race. Um, you know, when you're a driver, drivers are selfish and they have to be. You know, that's part of the deal. They have big egos and that's what drives them on. That's what makes them make the choices they make, take the risks they take. Um, you know, they, they, they're gunfighters, you know. Uh, and as a driver, uh, yeah, you give the team a lot of credit. But 
but behind the scene, you know, it's, hey, I did it, right? Uh, you're an owner, you know that everybody from the truck driver to the chief mechanic to the people, you know, preparing food for the team over the course of that month. I mean, every sponsors, you name it, everybody contributes to it. So um, it's a, just a different sense of satisfaction. And uh, to be frank, I think as an owner, uh, because of the appreciation for what it takes, in some respects, I think it's, it's a greater sense of accomplishment and 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 success and it is as a driver did you find it cumbersome then to be a driver and an owner to have to wear both of those hats did they did they help each other or were, were they in conflict uh interesting question i think i don't ever recall it being cumbersome um i had a very good team good people around me that allowed me to really focus uh on the driving uh, we were very fortunate to have very strong sponsors, uh, you know, during that period of time. Um, so I really didn't have to worry too much about that. Now I worked hard to get, you know, to bring them to that point, but, um, but for the most part, the day to day was being run by, um, some really good people we had. And, um, and so it was less of a, it's not like when I got in the race car, I'm going, Oh, you know, I can't crash it. Cause if I do, it's going to cost me money. You know, uh, I was. I mean, you could go in there. I, that's how I would get into the car. I, well, I, yeah. I, that's how I get into cars now. Yeah, well, that's, you know, that seems natural that you would think that way, right? But uh, in the end, when you put that helmet on, you get in that race car and you're a racing car driver, the only thing you're thinking about is, you know, what am I going to have to do to win this race? Bobby, um, you know, you can't talk about this without talking about danger. So, you know, maybe the, perhaps the most famous crash, uh, Dale, Dale Earnhardt. Uh, losing his life. Um, and you you keep mentioning several times now Rick Mears. Somebody told me that Rick Mears was was the great next to you, the greatest oval car driver of all time. And I understand didn't he had an accident. It he was he got caught he was burned very badly as I recall. His feet were were it, almost yeah. destroyed. How tell us about the danger. And I know it's upgraded over the years, but uh, and you have a son who's now racing. Uh, if you knew that, mm -hmm. Jordan Graham, I've never met Graham. I'd like to meet him sometime. But tell us about the dangers that that are inherent in this sport. You watch Formula One. I mean, it goes so fast. You watch the Indy Five Hundred cars. Are, I mean, it's unbelievable the ins and the outs. What about the danger? Well, like like you said, uh, Governor, it's um, it's a lot safer today than it was when I raced. Uh, when I raced. It was a lot safer than it was in, say, the 60s or the 50s. I mean, there were periods of time when death was pretty commonplace in racing. Uh, now it's very rare, thankfully. Um, and even injuries in cars are uh, relatively rare today compared to, uh, you know, when I drove or, or others. Um, you know, technology has really come a long way and, and has not only, not only increased the speed of the cars, but commensurately increased the safety of them, uh, which that some people struggle with that idea that, well, if it's faster, it must be riskier. Well, you know, yes and no. Um, the, the space age materials that Indy cars and Formula One cars are made of are, um, are, you know, I mean, they've made racing tremendously safe over the years. That's not to say that you still can't get hurt because you can. Um, but the risk is, you know, the, the, the risk of that or the chance of that happening is, is certainly less. Um, but, you know, racing, um, there, I don't care how safe you make it, there's still, as I said, that element of risk. It may not be as high a percentage of before, but it's still there. And so you, 
you know, when you're driving, you know, it's there, but you don't, you know, frankly, you know what I said about ego earlier, you know, if you're a driver, you go, you know, you feel like, oh, that'll never happen to me. You know, that's, that's, that happens to other people. And, and if you look at the great drivers, um, very rarely do you see them having accidents. Um, you know, they're just, they have the focus, the intelligence, the commitment, um, the, you know, the, the concentration that is needed. And um, so, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it sounds trite, but, you know, there's the old saying, to finish first, you must first finish. And, uh, and that's, that's so simple, yet so obvious and so clear. Um, so the people that win are generally the ones that um, they don't have those accidents. They don't get involved in the accidents because they know, you know, where they should be or where they shouldn't be and, and what's worth taking, what chance should they take, what chance they shouldn't take. Um, you know, in Dale Earnhardt's case, for example, that really was, um, you know, that was um, the accident in and of itself wasn't that bad, but the seatbelts uh, weren't um, tight. And when he, you know, it, it, when he hit it, 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 you know, unfortunately, he was loose in the car, and, and that's how he got. That's how he had these uh, horrible injuries, uh, and he succumbed from them. Um, that doesn't, you know, that's happened in other forms of racing. Uh, but again, it's all about being prepared as a driver and as a team. When you say the best drivers take Lewis Hamilton or take some of the great drivers in Indy cars today. When you say they know when to take chances, or what, what, tell us what you mean by it. What does that mean? When you cut in, do you take? Do you pass somebody? Yeah, I mean, What's, yeah, yeah. I mean, what can what can what kind of maneuver can I make and, and get away with it where I don't take him out or I don't take me out? Um, you know, it, it's no good making a really risky pass and then you hit the guy or he hits you and you both end up out of the race. So you have to you have to know. You know, you really have to be able to gauge. Um, what's achievable and what isn't. And of course, this is all happening at 200 miles an hour. I mean, it's not like you say, let's time out, <laughs> let's think about this. You know, this is all going on while you're in the heat of the heat of battle. And, um, and, the, and the very good drivers are the ones who can do that, who can, um, who can uh, approximate or appreciate the level of risk that, that's needed and then um, either accept that risk or not. And, um, uh, and so, you know, people like Mario Andretti, um, you know, or, or, uh, or Johnny Rutherford on the IndyCar side or, you know, AJ Foyt. AJ Foyt, Rick Mears. Yes. Have they been in accidents? Yes, they have. We all have, but, um, they, you know, more often than not, they, they aren't, you know, and, uh, and that's what, that's what allowed them to win as many races as they did. Now your, your father was in the sport. You or the sport, and your son, as we mentioned. Um, it's one thing to assess the danger for yourself, another to be a father and watch that. How do you, in watching your son race, it, was there uh, any sense of guilt to see him follow in your footsteps and or fear uh, as he was going down that path? Yeah, well, I didn't really, I was not supportive of him uh, becoming a driver um, because I didn't feel like, I didn't want him to feel that he had to fill some kind of footprints. You know, my father raced, but he did it for fun. He wasn't a professional. And, you know, we were pretty, <laughs> we were weekend warriors that went out and had fun. We didn't, there was no sense of pressure that, oh, we had to win this race or what have you. So when I started racing, I never felt like I was living up to something. You know, I, I just felt, you know, off I went and I enjoyed it and loved it and everything else. 
in Graham's case, you know, he grew up, his father is a three-time IndyCar champion, you know, won the Daytona 24 hours, won the Sebring 12 hours, raced in Formula One. I mean, that was a whole different, you know, that's a different scenario. And yet, um, if you knew Graham when he was five years old, you would not be surprised as to where he is today. And, uh, you know, when he was growing up, while I may not have been necessarily supportive, he was just, um, he was determined. And he wouldn't, you know, he, once he got the, he started racing go-karts and, you know, he was successful and he wasn't making mistakes, wasn't getting in accidents. And I really kind of, as people ask, I, I really felt that as he, you know, progressed on through the sport, you know, if he had been having a lot of accidents, I would have said, hey, time out. Let's maybe let's think of golf. <laughs> let's do something else. But for him, um, racing and cars have been his life. And even to this point today, he's 33 years old, um, you know, uh, been in, and he just had his 250th race in Indy cars, which is a lot because he started very early. He, was, he started at 18 years old, which is very young. Uh, but, you know, it's his passion. It's his love. And, um, you know, uh, do I get nervous, uh, especially on the ovals? Yeah, I get nervous. But on the road courses and street circuits, I, I really enjoy watching him race because I think he's a very good driver. And um, wait, what's the difference in risk there? As from, from a novice perspective, why, why uh, just because well, speed? You know, speed, yeah. yeah. And the fact that you know, uh, the first thing you hit at Indianapolis is a brick wall, is a stone concrete wall. Um, you know, other racetracks you can go off the track and you know, not hit anything for a while or, you know, it's grass or you spin out or whatever. Um, you know, Indy's, Indy's Indy, Indy, you're going 250 miles an hour. Uh, and, um, so the ovals, I think, uh, I mean, I know, you know, when I drove my mother, for example, who was, a she's a pretty strong person. Um, and she loved racing, you know, she and my father, they went off and, and raced. She didn't personally race, but she was very supportive of it. Um, I mean, she wouldn't go to Michigan international speedway and I raced there. You know, for that, she'd go to Indy, but she wouldn't go to MIS. And uh, uh, so, yeah, the risk factor is greater. Uh, and, and yet he's he's always been a safe driver. So I probably shouldn't worry, but I am a parent and parents worry about their kids. Bobby, what about uh, what about fitness? You know, I don't you never hear much talk. You can't get in that car and 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 do uh, do that kind of a race without being fit. So how did you how did you work at it? And what does it take? And what well, is it I, like with the G-force? You get a certain G-force too when you're dry, yeah. riding. Fit. Yeah, tell us about that. Well, well, you know, remember you're you're in a race car. Let's say at Indy, you're in a race car for three to four hours, um, going 200 miles an hour or more all the time uh, for those three or four hours. Uh, you're being passed or you're passing people, so your level of mental fitness has to be super strong because you've got to be focused hundred percent on what you're doing. You know, there's no timeouts, no TV timeouts, even the pit stops when you come in because you can make up space, uh, you can make up positions during a pit stop and you're only in there for five or six seconds. Um, you even have to be kind of more on the ball, you know, in the pit stop than you are once you get going again. Um, so the, the physical and mental demands, uh, on a driver are, are, I don't think there's anything in, sport that um that equals it and if you look at the athletes look at the drivers um these guys have like eight percent body fat you know their their resting heart rates you know 40 
I mean, it's more like a uh, more like a bicycle racer or a, a track and field where the heart rates are, are are tremendous, tremendously low. So it's it's a kind of an unappreciated side of the sport, um, but it definitely is a sport. We'll be right back. And now back to the show. Now you uh, you're a co-owner with another legend, David Letterman. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm curious how how did you guys meet up and what approach does Letterman bring to the team that's different than yours? Well, I mean, I, I did I did not know, but David is from Indianapolis, uh, born and raised. Um, went to uh, Ball State in uh, Muncie, Indiana. Um, I did not know any of this. Uh, Graham's uh, Graham's godfather is Jack Hanna of the Columbus Zoo, and <laughs> that- Jack. Yeah, and Jack. That's uh, a great Godfather. Well, that's that's yeah. a, that's an all time great Godfather. Jack, to have. Jack's Jack's a, Jack's a wonderful man. Uh, not having a little issues right now, unfortunately, but a uh, wonderful guy. Anyway, he used to go on the show all the time with David, and I think David asked Jack one time, "Hey, I'd like to get Bobby on the show. Um, do you know him or whatever?" Jack, sure. So he, next thing you know, I get a call from uh, David's people and. Um, you know, we'd like you to be on the show. So I went on the show for the first time in 1986 after I won Indy. You know, at that time, I knew I began to understand David's passion for um, for IndyCar racing in particular, uh, for automobiles. And um, and so when I we used to race at the Meadowlands, you know, right across the, the Hudson. Uh, and we raced there from what, 1984 to 91, I think it was. And um, so whenever I go to the race, I'd, I'd invite David to the race and we'd go have dinner or something like that. And, and one day he said to me, well, if you're ever looking for a partner, um, I'd love to, um, you know, consider me please. So I said, okay, well, good to know. And, um, in 19 and 95, I called him up and I said, uh, you know, that bit about wanting to be a partner. Um, now's the, t- now's your chance. And he said, sign me up. So we've been partners since 1995 and David's been, he's been great. You know, he's not there on a, obviously on a day-to-day basis, uh, but, you know, he works with our sponsors. He's uh, been very uh, proactive in, in um, you know, uh, with charitable activities with with and around our team. Um, so he's, he's been a huge, uh, a huge plus for us. Bobby, what, uh, you know, this Formula One is exploding. It must kind of irk you a little bit that everybody wants to talk about Formula One and all the money and all that stuff. What What is the fundamental difference between formula one and in the indycar and what do you what do you connect to this formula one explosion in popularity what what do you and what do you think about it well formula one's always been very popular outside of north america um i will tell you what i attribute a lot of it to right now is netflix you know where they've had this series over the last three or four years on formula one which has done I mean, now you talk to young people and they, oh, it's all, you know, it's, um, you know, I saw it on Netflix, I saw this, saw that. Um, That's done a lot for sure to make uh, Formula One um, more popular in this country. You know, when Mario Andretti was, uh, when he he won the world championship uh, in uh, 1978, you know, it, it was popular then because of him and because of the fact that there was an American that was competing on a world stage uh, and not just competing, but succeeding on a world stage. There were a lot of Americans that raced in Formula One in the 60s and, and the 70s. Um, so, uh, but in the 80s, 90s, it really became kind of a closed society uh, in Formula One, that if you weren't 
either South American or European, you know, the chance of you getting in there was pretty slim. And, um, uh, but again, it's only been as of late. And of course, when you look at events like, you know, they had the, the Grand Prix, for example, U.S. Grand Prix at Indianapolis for a number of years. Uh, it didn't really do that well, frankly, uh, in part because, um, um, you know, when you look at the race in Austin, Texas, for example, most of the people that are there are, are it's an international crowd. They're from Central America, Mexico, South America, Europe, uh, because the drivers are from those countries. There's no Americans in Formula One right now. So the, the, the attraction for these people is to see their drivers, they're, and they're very nationalistic, each of those countries. You know, the Dutch are super happy now because uh, Verstappen is, is, you know, he won the world championship last year. You know, when I raced, there were four Frenchmen in Formula One. Well, it wasn't necessarily because the Frenchmen were the best. It's because the French government supported it, French companies supported it, and that's what drove it. And so it's, um, and they were very good, no, no question about it. But so, uh, so you're starting to see a little bit, um, you know, there's more interest in this country. Um, but it's not, um, I wouldn't say it's a homegrown interest as much um, yet. But obviously, this, this Netflix program has done a lot to uh, uh, bring in a lot of young American fans into Formula One, and, uh, which is great. Because I, I think the more popular racing is at any level, the better it is for everybody. Now, I, I, in terms of NASCAR, you tried NASCAR once, didn't go back. What was it about NASCAR that didn't didn't you didn't bring you back that way? Well, I, I was very fortunate to drive for one of the greatest families uh, in NASCAR history, the Wood Fam Wood Brothers family. Wonderful people. Still uh, enjoy seeing them. Uh, I mean, they were very very still are very famous. Uh, but, you know, they they won a lot of races in NASCAR. I had the chance to drive at Riverside, California, which was a, uh, a road racing circuit for them in 1984. And, uh, you know, uh, I mean, NASCAR racing is great racing. Uh, the capabilities of the car are not what they are in IndyCar racing. And I was kind of an IndyCar road racer. So while it was a thrill, it was a great experience to drive. It was not one that, that um, convinced me that, I, I need to do this all the time rather than go to rather than India. And of course, by 84, I hadn't won India yet. So, you know, I, that was my first objective to get that done. I've been to a number of IndyCar races and you go there. It's like you go down into the pits, you get where the cars are. It's like you're in an operating room. Every, everybody's got to be careful. You don't touch anything. You dress up <laughs> right to protect all the cars. You go to a you go to a NASCAR race and you're standing there in the pits and they say, "Hey, could you hand me a wrench? Come on over here, help me to change the tires on this car." It's just it's just so different. I I'm just still wanted one more thing around uh, around Formula One. Would Graham, your son, would he consider? And how hard is it to go from like um, you know an Indy car to a Formula One car? And I understand the Formula One car is a lot about computers more than I, I just explain yeah. all that to us Bobby well the Formula One car is more sophisticated because the rules allow it which also drives the cost um, so much uh, because the budget to run a Formula One program is is 10 times what it is 20 times what it is compared to uh, an Indy car um, you know Indy cars maybe 10 million dollars per season per driver uh, Formula One car you're dealing four or five hundred million dollars a year I mean it's just totally crazy money. You know, I, I, I ran the Jaguar Formula One team for a couple of years in the early 2000s. And 
we had $250 million budget and we were one of the least financed teams in Formula One. Um, and, and the difference is, is seen on the, on the racetrack, um, which is unlike IndyCar where the, restri- the, 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 the sophistication is much more limited. And so it becomes more like Formula One used to be in the 70s and 80s where it's car and driver. Uh, but yeah, Formula One's very, very sophisticated, uh, and uh, and that draw that that sophistication draws a lot of interest uh, for people uh, because it's you know I mean it's like for those guys it's like going to the moon every race uh, in terms of, in terms of that sophistication. But um, uh, but it's it's um, you know I, I think the big difference is uh, in Formula One the car makes a much bigger difference in the performance of the team versus say an IndyCar or NASCAR for that matter. Um, it's more, a little bit more old school IndyCar and NASCAR than in Formula One is. And you see that on, on, you see that in the results because different, different teams win and qualify on pole every weekend in IndyCar. Whereas in Formula One, it's the same one or two teams that are, you know, dominating the sport every given year. I'm curious. There's always talk, especially now about the politicization of sports uh, when it comes to uh, race car driving, uh, sponsorship is such a big deal. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, and now we're kind of living in a culture where um, corporations and their connections to whether it's politics or causes is um, is more transparent and a part of why people are fans of that particular brand. And the fact mm-hmm. that brands are also connected to this sport, how how have you seen that change and where do you see that going? Well, I think it's been, I think, a little bit, um, um, yes, there's, there's politics and everything, right? Um, but I don't think that racing has been uh, as much at the forefront of that. I think it's tried to se- separate itself or, um, you know, that's, you know, that's great. That's fine. But we're here to race. You know, it's kind of a different, it, the approach, I think, might be a little bit different. Um, um, and yet. Uh, I think racing's always been uh, open, uh, particularly IndyCar racing and even NASCAR racing, open to some of the some of the um, um, concepts or theories or what have you that are you see prevalent now. You know, um, for example, you know women drivers. Uh, that's been something that's been pretty much embraced. I mean, you saw female, women drivers in the '50s, '60s, '70s, '80s. Um, uh, you know, uh, drivers who are from, you know, black drivers, uh, there's over the years. Uh, in fact, the, the fellow that I, that sponsored me, Jim Truman sponsored selling Willie T ribs in the, in the eighties. And Willie ended up going to, to, uh, uh, to Indy also to NASCAR. Um, so there, there's been, I think an openness, um, there's always been, you know, I, I brought Danica Patrick into, into racing on a bigger level. Um, you know, Ford Motor Company was behind her for a, a period of time, and then she came to drive for us. Uh, Danica Patrick uh, absolutely lit the crowd up at Indy in 2005 when she damn near won the race. Uh, I mean, it's so I think racing's always been a little bit more open. Has it does it beat that drum publicly and loudly? I'd say no, um, just because it's been a little bit different in that respect, I guess. But um, it's always do you, think it would, do you, th- you think it would benefit from that? Do you think that's something that uh, you could see changing? And, and Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, there's already, um, there's programs that have been announced. Uh, NASCAR's had, you know, programs, any car for um, disadvantage, you know, 
for females, for uh, uh, drivers of color. Uh, I mean, that, that, that's been uh, out there. It's continuing. It's probably gaining a little bit of strength, to be sure. In racing, there's a lot of entities, people, whatever, from all different walks of life that believe all different things. It, it's, it's not like it's, a, it's there, but it's not something that, um, as I said, that drum isn't being beaten all the time, you know, like you might see in some other sport. So, although I'm waiting to see Elon Musk in the Twitter car, <laughs> I can see that coming. Yeah. <laughs> that would be yeah, well, it, so it I, won't be one, an electric car. I can tell you that now. Yeah, that's a good point. Now, Bobby, when you're driving at 200, 250 or 45 years old, you retire. I always think about these, uh, these F-16 pilots, you know, they, they fly. And then all of a sudden one minute that they, they're out, they're not flying these planes mm-hmm. anymore. Is, has that, was that a tough transition to go from the high speed intensity, the focus of, of racing, and then all of a sudden one day you ain't doing it anymore? Yeah. Um, well, I, I will tell you, uh, Governor, I, 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 even today I, I occasionally miss the thrill of driving the race car, of going fast on a certain circuit or whatever. Um, but I don't miss all the other stuff. I don't miss the risk. I don't miss the tension, the pressure. I don't miss that. It's like uh, a very good friend of mine is Robin Yount. Again, he, you know, um, Hall of Famer, two-time most valuable player, you know, different position. I mean, the guy's a wonderful guy. And uh, we talk about we talk about it. And he comes to a lot of races because he's a big race fan. And he said it with baseball, it was the same way. He said I, he missed everything between the lines, but he didn't miss anything else. And it's it's very true. I mean, you miss the thrill of it. Yeah, what you're doing, what that's what brought you there in the first place, what excited you in the first place. But it's it's all the other stuff, the politics, the work, the this, the that, the travel, uh, that gets old pretty quickly. And so uh, you don't miss that. But I, I have to say also, I was fortunate because, um, you know, I had the team. So I was still heavily involved in motorsport, just in a different way. And um, I'm still, you know, we've been in business now as a team for 31 years. And, um, and so, uh, even today, uh, you know, I'm going to virtually every race, um, you know, I'm in the shop, I'm on the phone, I'm, you know, because this is a, this is a passion and that passion has not, uh, has not, uh, diminished over the years. Governor, I'm curious, uh, when we talk about, um, people getting out Side the game. Do you have similar feelings uh, about no longer being you, you an know, elected uh, office, Jordan? It's it's really pretty amazing. Uh, I feel really blessed about it. The answer is no. I mean, I uh, but I've always moved on to other things. You know, so I knew those things wouldn't last forever, and I've kind of dipped in and out of politics. Um, once in a while, when I see people, you know, starting to think about running for president, they start getting in the starting gate, like at the Kentucky Derby. And you you kind of think about that a little bit, but then it's all the things that are in, involved in it. But I I just uh, Jordan, I'll tell you a funny story. So for nine years I had security, and um, the year I was running, and then the eight years I was governor. The day that our current governor Mike Dewine was sworn in, in in his inaugural, not only did the highway patrol leave my house, but they used to have an orange cone there so they didn't park on the grass. 
Not only did they leave, but they took the orange cone. I drove myself down to the inaugural and drove myself away from the Capitol. I mean, that's pretty damn stark, right, when something like that happens. But I honestly have really never looked back. And somebody says, aren't you glad, you know, during COVID, aren't you glad you're not there? I said, no, 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 I would have liked to have been there. The, The challenge was great. But I sort of did that. Now I'm doing something else. And I think what Bobby's saying is, he moved into something else. He didn't kind of just exit. And, you know, he's got his dealerships. He's enormously successful as a businessman. And Jordan, I don't know how long your business, your line of work can go. But my advice to anybody is don't hang everything on that. Think about other things, other things that you can do, because it'll keep you, it'll keep you inspired. So it's, it's amazing that I could say that I've never looked back, but I really haven't. That's, yeah. I consider that to be a blessing. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, Bobby, it's I saw a video of you donating or uh you sold the car that you won Indy in to um uh to a museum. And I think like yes. there's an interesting balance between holding on to the memories that you have and also and memorabilia, the things that become yes. memories for other people. How do right. you balance those two? Where where are you on that spectrum? Well, that car that was my winning car in Indy in 86. Um you know, I felt that that, um, that needed to be at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Museum for, because it wasn't mine necessarily. It was my, um, it, it was racing. So it was the Indianapolis Motor, Indianapolis 500's property. It was, you know, everything that, that, uh, that it represented. Um, you know, if I owned it, which would be great, but if it just sat in my garage and nobody ever saw it or rarely see it, uh, that I, I thought that was kind of, selfish frankly and i thought that being in the museum was the right place for it and and i think it is the right place for it and it's there and they they just took it to england to a big automobile racing car show there uh several weeks ago um so you know uh very proud of that and um and it's it's in the right place it's in the the ims museum is a great museum and um it's a great place for people you know, strong fans or beginning fans to go really see the history of the sport. And so for it to be there is, I think I'm very proud of that. Well, to follow and support the many Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan racing teams, go to rayhall.com. And to find a Ray Hall auto dealership near you, go to bobbyrayhall.com. Hey, everybody. Jordan here, uh, your favorite host of the Kasich Klepper podcast. Thank you for listening this far. If you like what you hear, click like or thumbs up or whatever icon signifies a positive reaction. We love your ratings. We love your thoughts. Reach out to us on social media. Let us know what you want us to talk about because I'm tired of answering the governor's questions and I just prefer to answer yours. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Kasich and Klepper is a production of Treefort Media, hosted and executive produced by John Kasich and Jordan Klepper. Treefort Media's executive producers are Kelly Garner, Lisa Ammerman, and Matthew Kugler. Line producer is Oscar Guido. Associate producer, Lee Albanese. Audio direction by Tom Monahan, head of audio for Treefort, with production and editing by Maxwell Carney. Sound editing by Abigail Sullivan. Talent booking by Blythe Asher. With additional production help from Tim Schauer, Haley Mandelberg, Lindsay Whistler, Colin Motel, and Anastasia Ibrahim. This podcast is powered by ACAST.